Okay, so some real philosophy now. Manual Kant, Critique of Pure Reason. Now, I want to jump into this as quickly as I can because this is a monster. But there are a few things I need to say first. Uh, it's kind of like housework. Um, if you want a quick introduction to Kant, turn this off, run away, because we're going to be going through this methodically, right? And my edition is the Cambridge one, so that actually has both the first and second editions put together and where there are differences between the two the authors mention that or the editors mention that I should say so it's as though I'm presenting both versions however I will not make the distinction between the two because that would be too convoluted messy and I just don't think it's all that necessary to actually understand it for hardcore like people wanting to know you know what were the differences between the two I can only say, go check them out yourself, because it would just take too long. So we're going to move through this very slowly. And, you know, as a consequence, I cannot right off the bat say how many parts this is going to be. Because, you know, I've read it, I have my notes, but I don't know how long it'll actually take me to present all the ideas, because I don't write out the actual script in advance, because that would take too long. <clears throat> so... Let's just hop right into it. Okay. So he starts out by giving us two distinctions, or giving us a distinction, I should say, between two types of reasoning or two types of ways of understanding the world. The first one is a priori. The second one is a posteriori. So the first one, the a priori, deals with what is universal. Things that we can deduce via our um, I guess, faculties of reason or cognition that we can think in our brains and logically arrive at the conclusion that it is a universal statement. So the one that works really well here is all bachelors are single. So we know that to be a true statement. So the predicate, and the predicate is the description of the subject or description of what the subject is doing or, or whatever. The predicate in that sentence is the all bachelors are single, whereas bachelors is the subject. So for Kant, that is an a priori statement because it is universal. You cannot have a time or a situation in which a bachelor is not single because embedded within the predicate, that is the idea of being single, is imminent. That is, it is within. It is part of our understanding of bachelor. So through this kind of logical you know, sequence, we know that this is an a priori statement that isn't grounded in experience. That is because not anyone on this planet has met every single bachelor and can confirm that in fact every single bachelor is single. So we only arrive at this conclusion with reasoning, with our cognitive capacity. And by virtue of that, because there is no contradiction found there, it's not as though you say, Every bachelor is single, and therefore, uh, they are all, um, I don't know, they all live in white houses. We cannot actually make that statement or make that claim because we cannot say for sure that all bachelors do, in fact, live in white houses because that statement, that predicate, is not actually a part of what it means to be a bachelor. So we have not met every single bachelor, yet we know something about every single bachelor because of the fact that they are all single. Now let's contrast that, or at least con cost contrast that with a posteriori 
uh, reasoning or knowledge. Now this comes directly about through experience. So if I walk into a room and there's a bachelor sitting on a table, I could say that bachelor is sitting on a table, which does not say anything about all bachelors, nor is the predicate found within the subject that is sitting on a table has absolutely nothing to do with being a bachelor. What that form of reasoning or knowledge or perceiving of the world tells us is something about the world that is specific. So Kant presents these two ideas or two ways of kind of, you know, looking at the world or having the world presented to us and says that these are the primary ways in which we've understood up till his point then uh, how the world can be presented to us. But Kant is not totally interested in maintaining these two terms as being the kind of only ways we can understand the world. Because he's interested in what actually makes it possible for us to infer various, you know, logical conclusions, to deduce various logical conclusions. And he asks, how is it possible at us for us even to perceive the world at all? So these questions trouble the basic idea that, you know, as humans were just born and that we, the world is kind of trains us in some way to perceive it in a certain way and that we then comply to that narrative. So we can think here maybe of like um, the quote unquote postmodern idea that, you know, you're born into the world and it dictates who you are and then you mold to that world. Kant says, and he's not responding to those thinkers because he came much before it, but Kant says, I'm not too sure about that because it seems as though there's something embedded in all of us that makes it possible for us to perceive the world and then through that perception be able to organize what it is we're seeing into various categories so that we can understand them. So he's like, what is going on here? Because it seems as though we aren't born as a kind of blank slate, but have this innate capacity for this. So this is kind of setting out what he's doing in this text in that he's trying to find what I will kind of vulgarly or brutally call a place in between the a priori and the a posteriori. That is, he's trying to find that which underwrites the two that makes both possible. So for that reason, he doesn't privilege really one over the other. So he doesn't say that a priori knowledge, that is, you know, logical deduction and reasoning is any more important than a posteriori, nor the other way around. Now I say that and someone reading it might say, oh, well, what about this passage? It seems very clear, like on page in my version 128, he seems to say that uh, a priori allows us to say more about the world than experience, which is true. So, you know, try not to get into the nitty gritty, you know, actually do whatever the fuck you want. But it's just important to note that I on the whole, he's not totally interested in battling it out between those two, but is rather interested in what underwrites them, what makes them possible. So in order to put that in his words, I'm going to jump through the book a little bit to a passage on 243 in my version, the Cambridge version. So he says, If the objects with which our cognition ha has to do were things in themselves, then we would not be able to have any a priori concepts of them at all. For whence should we obtain them? If we take them from the object, without even investigating here how the latter could become known to us, 
then our concepts would be merely empirical and not a priori. If we take them from ourselves, then that which is merely in us cannot determine the constitution of an object distinct from our representations, i.e. be a ground why there should be a thing that corresponds to something that we have in our thoughts, and why all this representation should not instead be empty. But if, on the contrary, we have to do everywhere only with appearances, then it is not only possible but also necessary that certain a priori concepts precede the empirical cognition of objects. For as appearance, they constitute an object that is merely in us, since a mere modification of our sensibility is not to be encountered outside at all. Sounds confusing, but I'm going to dissect it. But I have another little passage to read from the next page. Where he says, Their synthesis through the pure imagination, the unity of all representations, in relation to original aperception, precede all empirical cognition. Pure concepts of the understanding are therefore possible, indeed necessary a priori in relation to experience, only because our cognition has to do with nothing but appearances, whose possibility lies in ourselves, whose connection and unity in the representation of an object is encountered merely in us, and thus must precede all experience and first make it possible as far as its form is concerned. So what the hell is he saying there? Well, in a nutshell, because there are a lot of terms, or there are many terms that he presented there that I haven't presented yet, and I'm doing this deliberately because I find this to be the most concise moment that he lays out what his project is. He's trying to understand how it is that the world outside can actually make itself known to us. So if I look at a tree, nothing in my mind tells me that the thing is a tree. However, we have some kind of capacity to recognize a tree and by virtue of that can then clump it, can organize it among the various different, um, among its various different components. So tree is a, yeah, tree is a good example. But when we see a tree, what we're seeing, if we break it down, are leaves connected to branches, connected to bark, connected to ground, connected to grass, connected to all this stuff. Yet somehow we have the ability to put all that together and come up with this thing called the tree. But for Kant, the tree is never, never presents itself to us as itself, what he calls the thing in itself, or the noumena, noumenal, noumenon, whatever. Uh, instead, we only take it in as an appearance. So we have something in our mind that makes it, that turns a thing in itself into an appearance that we can then consume and that we can then organize among our various faculties. So for him, what we have to get at, and this is what where someone could read in Kant an appreciation of the a priori, we have to understand, and we can only arrive through this through a priori thinking, what it is in us that makes that cognition possible. But even that cognition is in itself a representation, and that's the kind of hook you know, where does it begin? Does it first begin with a representation of the world? Or do we first begin with a, with a kind of transcendent thing that precedes that uh, perception, that um, image of the world? So it's a chicken and egg situation that he tries to unravel by presenting a series of other terms and other arguments, which let's go. 
After presenting the distinction between a priori and a posteriori knowledge, he presents us two different forms of judgment or kind of um, analysis. Analytic, he calls one, and synthetic. Now these correspond pretty smoothly to the ideas of a priori and a posteriori respectively. So a priori relates to analytic judgment and a posteriori relates to synthetic judgment. So with the analytic, like the a priori, the predicate and the subject are directly linked, like in the case of bachelors being single. And then in the synthetic judgment, there is a disconnection between the two, where that very, that particular judgment is telling us something specific about the world, where the bachelor is sitting on the table. They don't connect to one another fundamentally, but they, they are telling us something about the world. So the first one Kant, Kant says is analytic, as, as I said, he calls that a mode of clarification because it is telling us something universal about the world that helps us build our understanding of it that is universal. Now, in opposition to that, we have our synthetic form that he calls amplification. That pretty much adds our, to our knowledge of the world in particular or specific instances. So clarifying the world because the world is out there and it has various truths that are, you know, logically consistent. And those are being, in a sense, you know, clarified for us. Whereas amplification is telling us something that extends beyond the realm of truth that is specific to the world. So it is here that he introduces the idea of an a priori synthetic judgment. So this is kind of a kind of mix of the two, to some extent, where he's trying to understand a priori, how it is possible that we see the world, can make you know, inferences about it or any kinds of things about it that just by experiencing the world, we cannot get. So there must be something that underwrites that possibility, some kind of mode of perception that we are not privy to that makes it possible for us to perceive at all. But because that mode of perception makes experience possible, that is, it makes it possible for us to see the world and then to consume it to some extent as an image, it must precede that experience. Therefore, we can only think about it a priori, that is through logical reasoning and deduction. So this is the synthetic or uh, a priori synthetic judgment. So what was then pure reason? Because that's the title of the book. It's a critique of pure reason. Well, for Kant, he tells us that pure reason is that which is devoid of any kind of experience of the world. So pure reason, that a priori, is devoid of any uh, relationship to the world. We're, he gives the example of mathematics. So we know 2 plus 2 equals 4, not because we've seen 2, you know, whatever that is, hopping around in the world, you know, added to another 2 equals 4. We only arrive at that conclusion because we know that following this mathematical theorem that doesn't have any kind of place in the world, or this proof, I should say, has no actual place in the world, through that we know that we come up with the solution 4. So it's for that reason he, he presents the distinction between reason and pure reason, where pure reason is totally devoid of any experience of the world, and reason is not necessarily, because we have to know what a bachelor is only by having experienced essentially one bachelor, and through that we can know what, you know, is part or what are some of the characteristics of a bachelor. So that is, you know, we arrive at through that through reason. But pure reason, to reiterate, is totally without any kind of sensibility. So it doesn't have to do at all 
with our sensing or experiencing the world. But for him, pure reason doesn't go far enough because pure reason is still caught up with things out in the world. It is still caught up with, you know, proving things out in the world without having any connection to it. Whereas he wants to oppose that with what he calls a kind of special science. And this kind of portends, it sets the stage for how he's going to set up or think about, you know, various other kinds of uh, mathematical and physics-like and astronomy and all that type of stuff later on. Because he's interested in the way that there can be, there should be a science that evaluates even the conditions for the possibility of a pure cognition or pure reason. So what is it that comes before that capacity to have pure reason or that makes it even possible? And this is what he calls a transcendental approach. So by looking at something or considering what makes something possible is for him looking at what is transcendent in that. So what transcends pure reason? That is exactly what he's trying to get at. What is it that makes pure reason possible? That sets the possibility for something? That is what the transcendent approach is. Getting at almost the kind of bedrock of what it means to be human to some extent, or to be a kind of perceiving, reasoning, cognizing thing. So this task demands, that is the task of getting at the transcendental space that makes everything else possible, it demands a complete bracketing off of all experience, which we have yet to do because we are always already enmeshed. We're kind of born within experience. And by virtue of that, we have such a difficult time at getting at what makes that possible. Now, whether or not Kant actually gets there is, you know, I think up for debate. And there are lots of debates even as to what he's saying, <laughs> which I should have mentioned, and I can't claim to know best, but this is just what, you know, I'm getting out of it and all the research I've done. Anyways, so he goes from here to then break down what these this transcendental approach will look like. So for him, he gives us an interesting qualification a little later on that I think is important to mention on 196 in my version, where he says that the difference between the transcendental and the empirical, or the emo uh, the, the experience-oriented uh, synthetic a posteriori that relates to the empirical, so let me repeat, the difference between the transcendental and the empirical therefore belongs only to the critique of cognition and does not concern their relation to their object. Because if we were to do that, be concerned with the relation to the object, then we would totally lose sight of our project because we wouldn't be getting at the crux of the matter that demands a complete bracketing off of everything that it relates to experience. And we'd only be caught then within the realm of experience. We wouldn't get at the heart of things. So then the transcendental approach can be broken into two broad categories. That is transcendental aesthetic and transcendental logic, where I'm not presenting both at this moment, but we're going to start now with transcendental aesthetic. Or, well, actually, let's put this on the back burner for one second because there is something or a couple things I forgot to mention leading up to this point that are important. They come out of the second edition that I forgot to uh, add, even though I said I wasn't going to do that. But anyways, here we go. So there's an important point he makes in the second edition where he says that although we can't actually get at a thing in itself, we are only presented with a kind of appearance of it. He says that that doesn't mean that there's no truth to the thing. 
Rather, he's interested in kind of crafting a way to actually get at that truth of the thing. But we must understand that up till this point, we can only think of it in terms of our experience. And he calls that thing in itself its substance, like what is beneath the appearance that we consume, that we see, we perceive. What is underneath that is the substance of the thing or the thing in itself. And he also adds in this edition uh, that pure reason, without a proper investigation of what makes it possible, just relies kind of on dogma. It kind of gives itself over to a kind of divine understanding, which, you know, if anyone knows anything about Kant, he was like an extremely religious person. But you don't really find that in this text. Like he doesn't just resort to a kind of divine explanation of why things are the way they are. Because for him, if we did that, if we just said, well, God makes it possible, then we wouldn't actually be able to have any understanding of it, which is not satisfactory for him at all. So pure reason then, as that which subtends all faculties of reason and perception, is concerned with God when it's concerned with God, freedom, and immortality, very big questions. So if these areas are explored without an examination of reason and perception, that which subtends that possibility, then we are, they are merely assumed as dogma, taken, as, uh, taken met metaphysically without any real explanation, a kind of odd materialism found in Kant here that is getting at the crux of the thing, even though it's a kind of transcendent materialism. It goes beyond what, you know, the empirical nature of the world. So this is probably, and what follows here is probably the most important point to take that I should have mentioned earlier, and that shines poorly on me reflects poorly on me and it shows here that I don't edit these things so this is all kind of I don't know why I do this to myself an example of a synthetic a priori which we've presented so far as a kind of in between the a priori in the in the a posteriori looks like this and this is the one that Kant gives everything that happens has its cause how do we know that that is true so if everything that happens has its cause we know that, in fact, it is true because nothing just pops out of thin air. Like, matter can be neither created nor destroyed. Like, everything must come from something that already exists. Because there is no divine deus ex machina hand of God that just brings pop and something's there. But we haven't experienced every event, nor can we actually make the inference, the kind of deduction, that a thing, if we're witnessing something, will always result in another thing, because it might not all the time. But we know that everything that has happened, happened for a reason. And this isn't some kind of like, you know, um, dogmatic or uh, Christian-like, you know, God has a, God doesn't play with dice type thing, or don't believe in coincidences. But actually, materially within the world, everything that happens, happens because of something else. Like, I, I drop my book on the floor, we know that the book is going to fall down. But how we know that, we don't know. You know, that's one of the great mysteries of um, that Einstein was so concerned with was how does gravity work? But it's something we take for granted just because we assume that the effect, that is the thing falling, the book falling, will follow, will succeed the cause, me dropping it. But we don't know why that happens. So for Kant, this is an interesting problem that only the synthetic a priori can really get to or get at. So there are a few other fields that demonstrate this as well. Geometry, for instance, where he gives the example of a triangle. 
Now, a triangle has a number of different properties, and those properties we know because we've kind of existed in the world and know what a triangle looks like and can have the mental image of it in our head, which then from there, we are able to extract various rules and principles that we've arrived at logically that make it so that the triangle is then part and parcel with the very rules that we have kind of crafted about it, but it doesn't exist out in the world. They have we've come to reveal a kind of truth of the thing that extends beyond our experiencing it and extends beyond our uh, reasoning it. Because without knowing what a triangle is, we couldn't arrive at that conclusion. So the transcendental approach that takes the example of geometry or any of the other, because he gives a few other examples, like natural science, mathematics, all this type of stuff, it demands a kind of speculation or it's a kind of speculative philosophy for him that is the transcendental approach because it is so far removed from everything we know pertaining to reality and reason and logic and all that in that it's totally outside of our realm of understanding. So here we get now into the transcendental aesthetic. So the transcendental aesthetic is concerned primarily with sensation with and with intuition. So what it is we see in the world that is the world as empirical, but it is still an empiricism that is found only in images because that's the only way we can actually engage with the world through our senses. That is what the transcendental aesthetic is interested in, specifically in those faculties in perceiving the world with some caveats here and there, but we'll get into that. So he begins the section by saying that intuition is opposed to the concept, which is merely the mark of the intuition. So intuition is like when you, you know, see a tree and you're able to clump it into an idea that you are not supposed to be scared of the tree. You know, there's something about the tree that comes to you through intuition, you know, the kind of feeling you have from it, the gut feeling that tells you various things about it. Now, when it actually comes together into the signifier tree, T-R-E-E, or an image of it or anything like that, it is then turned into a concept. So that concept then allows you to compare it to other concepts. So you're able to say tree is tree because it's not fox or it's not, you know, house or whatever. Only in relation to other concepts, which is an idea we'll build on a little bit later. But for now, we just have this distinction between intuition and the concept. So in order for anything to actually become a concept, we must first intuit it to some extent. We must first perceive it through some kind of sense. Without any sense, without any kind of perceptive capacity, be it through any of our senses. So if you if you were lacking, and I might be going over my head here, but if you were lacking sight, smell, uh, touch, taste, hearing, it would be very, very, very difficult for you to get any kind of sense of the world around you, which isn't to say it's impossible, of course. But, you know, this is this is me saying, you know, you can't even sense vibrations or any kinds of feeling at all. Getting a sense of the world would be extremely difficult to the point where we could ask, then, does the world even exist to that person? Because the world, even as we know it, is a concept that has only arrived via various intuitions. But that's kind of an aside. So he says that intuition is related to the object, whereas sensation is related to the subject. So sensation dealing with our senses has a kind of subjective domain to it where I can see, uh, you know, the color red and I, you know, 
probably for someone else will experience it as red, but when it comes down to the various, you know, different kinds of red, and I have this, these kinds of conversations all the time because I have a, uh, an ambiguously colored couch that looks gray to some people and green to others, it really calls into question the nature of our understanding of the thing and how our senses are subjective in that way. They tell us only something specific about the world that corresponds to our understanding of it. So even before intuition, Kant tells us that we must sense the thing, right? So we must actually, before we know whether we're supposed to be scared of the thing, like if we, if we see a bear, we don't know to be scared of it if we haven't sensed it in the past, in that we don't know to be scared of the bear unless we've, you know, feared it, unless it's already entered our kind of sensible domain. So in the, the how the sequence goes then is that we sense something and then it belongs into our domain of intuition, which can then be transformed into a concept. So what we ultimately sense is the appearance of the thing, which comes to occupy its matter for Kant, because that is all we can actually get. We can only get the appearance of the thing through our senses. So the what he it's here that he introduces another kind of key term that is a tricky one, and that is the manifold. So the manifold is um, what he calls it's the kind of it's kind of like a multiplicity. So when you have a manifold of something, it is like all its constitutive parts are flying at you without any kind of coherence to them. So when he says something like the manifold of appearance let's say the manifold appearance of a chair, what those things are that is that constitute or that comprise the manifold are the legs and the cross bars and the back chair part and the seat and, you know, the wood follicles and all, all the things about it that are just a load of sensory appearance that just flies at the person. So they don't know that there's a kind of uh, organizational product there that is the idea of a chair. So at first, the thing appears to us as an image, a manifold of appearances that don't cohere in any significant way that we sense, that we that flies at us, that we must organize, which come into the form of a kind of sense of um, intuition. That is, we know what the thing is as being, you know, a thing to be feared or, you know, a thing to like or a thing to eat or thing to lick or whatever, which then can then become, which then can then which can then become a concept. So to relate this back to the question of what underwrites this possibility, Kant says, how is it possible that we are able to actually organize? Because it seems to come before thought, because thought for him only occurs really when you're able to organize various things, various concepts. How is it that we know to even organize a thing, to intuit it, to make it so that we know not to be scared of it or anything like that? So to kind of riff off of this or to kind of explain how there are kind of a priori principles when it comes to sensing things, that is, there are things that we know about before we even know how to even think about something, he tells us that there are two parts of the world that are unchanging and that are fundamentally universal, that is, same as unchanging, and those are space and time. So let's jump ahead here because he has a nice passage on 248 that kind of lays it out in a good way. So he says that the supreme principle of the possibility of all intuition in relation to sensibility was, according to the transcendental aesthetic, 
that all the manifold of sensibility, so that is all the kind of crap of sensibility, stand under the formal conditions of space and time. So for him, space and time are pure things. That is, they're pure kind of concepts that exist in the world that we have embedded within us an understanding of without us having experienced them. So let's start, he starts out with space. So he says that space is that which is intuited outside of seeing, uh, with outside of a seeing subject, and it allows everything else to be perceived. So the very possibility of us to experience anything at all demands that we have this understanding of space, because it is impossible for us to talk about anything, for us to intuit anything, for us to sense anything that exists outside of space, because everything is within it. So we must be born to some extent or must have a faculty within us that recognizes this space and what is more, and he doesn't really mention this, but is actually able to kind of um, render it transparent or to kind of make it, um, kind of erase it from being a part of our kind of active perception of the world so that it just kind of acts as the background, yet a necessary background. And I should add that the reason that it doesn't arrive to us a posteriori, that is, our understanding of space doesn't come about through experiencing the world, would be that uh, if that were the case, we wouldn't be able to universalize its presence. It would only exist in specific instances at specific times. Whereas for Kant, he says it's everywhere. So we, we can't say that. It must be, you know, it must be a pure thing that is completely devoid of experience or any kind of uh, change or alteration. So he tells us on page 161 that the transcendental concept of appearances in space, on the contrary, is a critical reminder that absolutely nothing that is intuited in space is a thing in itself, and that space is not a form that is proper to anything in itself, but rather that objects in themselves are not known to us at all, and that what we call outer objects are nothing other than mere representations of our sensibility, whose form is space, but whose true correlates, i.e. the thing in itself, is not and cannot be cognized through them, but is also never asked after an experience. So here we get another sense of this chicken and egg situation, where there are things in the world that we can only perceive once we have an understanding of space, but it seems to be only possible that we can have an understanding of space if everything derives in the mind. That is, if we have kind of a priori conception of space that makes it possible to intuit things in the world. But we, we only know space is out there because there are things in the world. So, you know, we're kind of caught here. So getting at this, this transcendental aesthetic is looking at what subtends that possibility. So before really expounding upon that, he says that there is also another component of existence that is pure. That is, it can be totally bracketed off from experience, yet is totally a part of it. That is time. So in addition to space, he tells us that time gives us the possibility of seeing things in sequence. So that we see a thing in space, we can actually make a, a difference between, you know, if I have a lamp on a table, as I do here, and then someone else later comes to put in the exact same spot, you know, a trophy, I know these two things are not the same because over the course of time, because I have an, a concept of things being 
possibly changing because without time you wouldn't know things can in fact change that is the objects in the world or their appearances can in fact change without that knowledge i would just assume these two things were the same thing so time and space complement one another and like space time is only really relevant if we consider it in uh, relation to things things that we perceive in the world so again we get this chicken and egg type situation and then he adds a kind of qualificatory remark saying that we have to be careful not saying, you know, I see things in space. He says, you only see the appearance of things in space and time. And he even adds to that, that we shouldn't, while his project is interested in kind of getting at the heart of everything, that is, as it derives from our, as humans, understanding, or other kind of uh, high advanced species, he says that it's it's wrong to say that there is a kind of uh, simulation effect going on, that there is a, 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 a simulation that covers things, like in kind of Plato's cave. Instead, he's saying that's all we can really get. That's all we can ever get because we have these kind of a priori conditions, these faculties that arrive to us a priori because they're devoid of experience that make us possible to experience things. But those experiences are only made possible through experience. Uh, through uh, appearances and not through the things in themselves because there's always a kind of disconnect. So this is a kind of phenomenal phenomenology. So that is the idea that we perceive the world as appearance and that it's through those appearances that we come to constitute the world through our intuitions of them, through our sensations, through our concepts of them, which then come to alter how we perceive them. So there's a kind of giving and taking between the two, between appearances and the sensing subject, you know, not between the thing in itself and the sensing subject because that doesn't that doesn't work. So Kant says that if we can accept that, if we can accept that we can only see the world through appearances, we've made a huge step in the right direction. Because if that is a fundamental truth of how things are, because we can't get at the thing in itself, then we can learn a lot about what the faculties are within us that make it possible to do that. Because if we, you know... If I see a car and I have no idea what a car is and someone comes along and starts like rolling it, like it's at like a, like a homecoming party or like a tailgate or something, some crazy, you know, white boy shit thing to do, rolling like a car around and I had no understanding of what a car was, by my seeing that, I would kind of be misled as to what a car is. So... For Kant, it's very much the same thing in that he's trying to get at what things are, I guess, as processes of appearance, as things that, as they appear to us, as they properly arrive from a thing, which again, we can't perceive in itself, but through its appearance, that we must be totally aware of. And that if we think that the car is determined by its being a rolling object, like if we think that a thing, we can interpret it in and of itself. We'd be running, you know, we'd be running way off course. and We'd be missing our mark greatly. So once he concludes here, or he can, that's how he kind of wraps up his transcendental aesthetic, he then moves into the other transcendental approach. That is the transcendental logic. Now this is concerned with cognition, primarily, among other things. So for him, cognition arrives through a two-step process. The first step being the reception of representations. So this is already assuming that a number of things have occurred from the domain of the transcendental aesthetic. 
That is, we have a kind of faculty, a kind of apparatus within us that is able to sense the world and then into it and then turn it into a kind of representation that can be turned into a concept. So cognition demands some of that having already occurred so that we are perceiving a, a, a representation of something. So that's the first step. And the second step is that uh, we cognize, cognize that object or an object uh, by means of that representation. So we enter it into our domain of concepts. So cognition is then the meeting of concept with intuition. So we are able to then to, well, this will come a little later, but insert judgment where we can know that lamp, or at least our understanding of it, is different from phone because of X, Y, and Z experiences we've had of the various things, the various representations we've had, the various ways they've entered, you know, they've become concepts and so on and so forth. And that it is fundamentally impossible for us to have cognition without having uh, a concept nor having had an intuition because you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have a concept of something without having ever, you know, understood what the thing is. So concept is primarily interested, or that is what cognition is for Kant. So this distinction goes further, where he says that the, to, to receive a representation, that is to receive a thing in the world, demands a sensibility, or that is the process of sensing something. Whereas to bring forth your own representations, that is through, you know, art or poetry or any kind of creative capacity demands understanding. So intuition for him is only ever sensible, where thinking can only come out of understanding, that is kind of cognition. So as far as this domain of cognition goes, he says that logic is divided into two fundamental categories. That is elementary logic, which is a general logic, which is ultimately indifferent to the object that is being evaluated. And then there is the particular, which is interested in the specific signs for a specific thing. So a general logic might look like, like this, like one plus one equals two. And we know that that is a general kind of proof that exists everywhere. But if I take a particular instance and I related it to an experience of the world, that is I related it to a heterosexual couple, coupling, one plus one does not equal two. Rather, it equals one, or you could say it equals three, because if you have one person plus one person, and they, you know, assuming that they have one child and they don't have twins or something, uh, what these two bring together is not two, or is not, uh, yeah, is not two, but is actually three in that one is added, or is one in that we consider the two, the end product being the result of the two first propositions, so the two first, you know, initiate initiatory proponents of the equation, Jesus. So we, we could see a distinction there between what he says, uh, logic being divided into general logic and particular logic. So to this distinction, he, you know, he says the particular is interesting, but for him, he's really interested in the general. So now he takes his general logic and further bifurcates it, demarcates it, splits it, where he says that, and I'll just read it. A general but pure understand or pure logic therefore has to do with strictly a priori principles and is a canon of the understanding and reason, but only in regard to what is formal in their use, be the content what it may be the content what it may, sorry, empirical or transcendental. A general logic, however, 
is then called applied if it is directed to the rules of the use of the understanding under the subjective empirical conditions that psychology teaches us. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what the state of psychology was at that point, but let's think of it this way. Uh, if I were to put forward a science that was interested in the way that people perceive things and I were to, you know, dig in the brain and find, you know, various uh, kind of true, real, always already there things of the brain that make it possible for me to sense, you know, through sight and are able to see things in the world through that capacity, I would be doing an applied general logic, kind of general science, because it would be, you know, general in that it applies to us all, but it's not transcendental in that it's not getting at the crux of what makes even those things possible because it's too grounded in, you know, the kind of material, physical, empirical part of the world. So he's then interested in the general but pure logic. So the kind of logic that grabs everything, but that is pure in that it is devoid of, or its analysis devoid of that experience or anything touching the world. So then I have another passage to read that I think captures this fairly, fairly well. So he says that what I call applied logic in opposition to the common signification of the word, according to which it ought to contain certain exercises to which pure logic gives the rule is thus a representation of the understanding and the rules of its necessary use in concreto, namely, under the contingent conditions of the subject, which can hinder or promote this use, and which can all be given only empirically. It deals with the tension, its hindrance and consequences, the cause of error, the condition of doubt, of reservation, of conviction, etc., and general and pure logic is related to it as pure morality, which contains merely the necessary moral laws of her free will in general, is related to the doctrine of virtue proper, which assesses these laws under the hindrances of the feelings, inclinations, and passions to which human beings are more or less subject, and which can never yield a true and proven science until, since it requires empirical and psychological principles, just as much as that applied logic does. So it's in that way that applied logic can't get at this, you know, the universal uh, transcendental components of human sensibility. So like the transcendental aesthetic, the transcendental logic tries to get underneath what makes this cognition possible, that makes this understanding possible, where he writes that the transcendental logic determines the, quote, or origin, the domain, and the objective validity of cognitions. So then Kant asks an interesting yet scary question, what is truth? And he doesn't shy away from it. And he says that if truth is the agreement of cognition with its object, that is, there is an agreement in the mind of how it cognizes something and how that thing wants to be cognized or how that thing is, you know, represented, then a general criterion of truth, that which would bracket off all objects in favor of a general framework, like 1 plus 1 equals 2, does not give us a truth because it dissociates cognition from objects. So it maintains that split between like a priori and a posteriori and doesn't get that in between or that underneath and when general logic does this and then it brackets off all the uh these cognition and the world then it becomes purely dialectic or in his words nevertheless there is something so seductive in the possession of an apparent art for giving all of our cognitions the form of understanding even though with regard to their content one may be very one may yet be very empty and poor that this general logic, which is merely a canon for judging, has been used as if it were an organon 
for the actual production of at least the semblance of objective assertions, and thus in fact it has thereby been misused. Now general logic as a putative organon is called dialectic, because it only gives us an illusion of truth, because it has broken off that relationship between sensing and kind of uh, the a priori conditions of the world, it has broken them off providing an illusion of there being a kind of real external world out there that can be thought in terms of the a priori. So he continues here. As different as the significance of the employment of this designation or of a science or art among the ancients may have been, one can still infer from their actual use of it that among them it was nothing other than the logic of illusion, a sophistical, that is sophist, art for giving up, for giving to its ignorance, indeed, even to its intentional tricks, the air of truth, by imitating the method of thoroughness, which logic prescribes in general, and using its topics for the embellishment of every empty pretension. Now, uh, now one can take it as certain and useful warning that general logic, considered as an organon, is always a logic of illusion, is dialectical. So let me reiterate so that I'm as clear as I can be and that I'm not like trying to hide behind Kant's words so as to not explain things how I think they're being said. What Kant is saying is that if we consider things as being separate, that is, we think that we can think the world in terms of pure reason, then we are going to forget that there is something that underwrites the possibility to perceive sensibly and to think cognitively. There is something that underwrites that that exists that is common to both and that makes it possible for us to even arrive at those different uh, conclusions. So it's for that reason that we cannot bracket the two and that rather than us being interested in the play between our cognition and things out in the world, we have to, in his words, be more interested in the content of cognition or more in his words, for since it teaches us nothing at all about the content of cognition, but only the formal conditions of agreement with the understanding, which are entirely indifferent with regard to the objects, the effrontery of using it as a tool for an expansion and extension of its in information, or at least the pretension of doing so, comes down to nothing but idle chatter, asserting or impeaching whatever one wants with some plausibility. But that does not mean that dialectics is lost completely, because Kant does the exact same thing as he does to the aesthetic or the logical, he says we can think of it in terms of transcendental, transcendental dialectics. So he says, In a transcendental logic, we isolate the understanding and elevate from our cognition merely the part of our thought that has its origin solely in our understanding. And then he establishes the necessity for us to be seeing things out in the world, which is goes as follows. So the use of this pure cognition, however, depends on this as its condition, that objects are given to us in intuition to which it can be applied. For without intuition, all our cognition would lack objects and therefore remain completely empty. So the part of transcendental logic, therefore, that expounds the elements of the pure cognition of the understanding and the principles of that which no object can be thought at all in the transcendental analytic, and at the same time, a logic of truth. But again, that only assesses the distinction or the kind of um, compatibility between our thinking of the object and the object itself, that is the appearance of the thing, which is only dealing with things in pure terms. So the use of the pure understanding would in this case therefore be dialectically rights. The second part of the transcendental logic must therefore be a critique 
of this dialectical illusion and is called transcendental dialectics. Not as an art of dogmatically arousing such illusion, an unfortunate highly prevalent art among the manifold works of metaphysical jugglery, but rather as a critique of the understanding and reason in regard to their hyperphysical use, in order to uncover the false illusion of their groundless pretensions, and to reduce their claims to invention and amplification, putatively to be attained through transcendent, transcendental principles, to the mere assessment and evaluation of the pure understanding, guarding it against sophistical tricks. So then one more passage I'll read here before closing this out. He says that I understand by an analytic of concepts, not their analysis, or the usual procedure of philosophical investigations, that of analyzing the content of concepts that present themselves and bringing them to distinctness, but rather the much less frequently attempted analysis of the faculty of understanding itself, in order to research the possibility of a priori concepts by seeking them only in the understanding of their birthplace, and analyzing its pure use, use in general. For this is the proper business of a transcendental philosophy. The rest is the logical treatment of concepts in philosophy in general. So we will therefore pursue the pure concepts into their first seeds and predispositions in the human understanding, where they lie ready, until with the opportunity of experience they are finally developed and exhibited in their clarity by the very same understanding, liberated from the empirical conditions attaching to them. So that, I'll stop there. So that deals up to, in you know my version, the end of the transcendental logic and you know, going through, having gone through the transcendental aesthetic. And then from here, we move on to the section titled, la la la, dealing with the analytic concepts. So this is where we're going to get into judgment. So the analytic of concepts, this is the first chapter, on the clue to the discovery of all pure concepts of the understanding. So we get up to that far. So this will probably be like six parts, but maybe it'll probably go quicker because there is some, um, it's a little repetitive. But anyways, I hope you liked what you heard. Um, I hope I was faithful to what Kant was doing.